and welcome to another episode of Secret Stories from the Underground. Today, our buddy John is podcasting with us. Uh, We had a few technical errors on this, so we do apologize, but we wanted to bring you this interview anyway. It's not the best quality, so we do apologize right out of the gate for that. Uh, Technical issues happen. But John is so knowledgeable and can teach so many things to people, we figured we'd put it out anyway because there's so much knowledge in this. John is an author, he's put out books, Uh, most of the topics are in, you know, stand-up comedy, he'll even teach you how to play a good game of poker. Google John's name and you can find all of his books on Amazon, I believe, and you know, all the places you go to buy books. We uh, we love books here. We we love them books. So anyway, support John's work. We appreciate it. And this uh, podcast was uh, in partnership. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. It was in partnership with the SJ Network. My buddy Stephen Joyner set this up. And uh, if you host a podcast, Steve can hook you up. He can hook you up with so many talented guests that have so many great stories. Please reach out to the SJ Network. If uh, you're looking for guests, or maybe you're looking to get your name out there, you never know what the situation is, but Steve can help you out. And also, please go like, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you do with podcasts, please do it so you can stay up to date with all the new episodes and all the stuff we're doing here. We're doing great stuff. So Uh, let's get into the interview for today. Thank you for supporting the podcast. This is another episode of Secret Stories from the Underground. Hello? Hello? I hear you. How you doing, John? I'm doing well. How are you doing? All right. Welcome to the show. I'm here with my co-host, Dean. How you doing, John? Hey, Dean. What's shaking, Becky? We're, we're just, uh, we're cooking out here in the sun, man. It's hot where we are. What's it like where you're at? Uh, not hot, but going to be hot. Going up like 20 oh. degrees over the next couple of days. Okay, yeah, it's like 90-something right here. And I, I'm over So I'm, I'm sweating. Where are you? We're in uh, Omaha, Nebraska currently. Oh, okay. Well, we know you're hot. I'm sure you get your summers. Yeah, it's uh, it's nowhere fun to be. Where are you at? Uh, oh, sorry, Southern California, near Los Angeles. Okay. All right. How far from uh, LA is that? Uh, I'm about ten miles from Los Angeles, near Pasadena. If you know where the Rose okay. Parade is. Okay. Um, yeah. We're we're gonna be audio only. Is that correct? Yeah, we're just audio, so you don't even have to wear pants to podcast. I, I changed my shirt and everything. Oh, that's a bummer, man. Well, I'm sure you guys. If If you want, send me a selfie through my email. I'll look at it. Yeah. Trust me, I'm looking good. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, your background. You're an author, you're a writer, uh, comedian. Uh, yeah, quite a lot of different things. Here's the version, the short version. Came out of college with an advertising copywriting degree, went to work as an advertising copywriter, hated that. Was afraid I was going to wake up in middle age, you know, having spent my youth making the world safe for advertising. 
So I fled from that career, and really that's the last time I've ever had a nine-to-five job. I became a singer-songwriter. I spent five years on the New England folk circuit, singing and playing guitar until I discovered there are two things I can't do all that well, sing and play guitar. But I was uh, having a lot of fun writing songs and, and uh, realized that I had some strength as a writer. So I moved to California, started writing situation comedies. I'm sure you may have heard of some of them, Married with Children, Charles in Charge, Head of the Class, and then a lot that you've never heard of. Because it was the 1980s and there were a lot of uh, off-brand situation comedies that offered a lot of work for a guy like me. But while that was going on, I was also teaching. I was teaching comedy writing and, and uh, sitcom. And I was really finding that, that there was a lot of value in that for me. I got a lot out of uh, teaching and training people. It was very fulfilling. So I wrote a book called The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not. And uh, thanks to that book, I've had a real robust career traveling and teaching writers all over the world. 37 countries on five continents, last count, including such uh, exotic locations as Nicaragua, and New Zealand, and I also spent two winters in Russia running the writing staff of the Russian version of Married with Children. So that's a snapshot. Where do we go? That's, wow. that, that's cool. Uh, was it difficult to balance out teaching and writing at the same time there? Difficult on a lot of levels. Let's start with the most basic one. Everyone who teaches has heard the expression, those who can't do teach, right? And yeah. The, the, what, what's related to that is, oh, if you were any good, you'd be off doing it. So since you're teaching it, you must be some kind of loser. We can present that to ourselves as an emotional block or process block. You sit right there saying this thing that you want to do, that you're passionate about, isn't good enough. You're a failure. You're a fraud. Get out of here. But I had a student say something to me once that I never forgot. She said, how about those who can do, do both? And I realized that if I have strength as a writer and strength as a teacher, then I just have to figure out a way to manage both of these strengths, keep them alive in my life, while also silencing that voice that says, you're a sad, pathetic loser, you shouldn't draw another breath. Am I projecting when I say that every creative person has that voice inside them? I don't think so. No, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's uh, really cool that you were able to do both there. Did Were you able to teach anybody that went on to be really successful or... Uh, I've had uh, quite a few students go on to bigger and better things. I trained the guys who wrote, what was that movie? That, oh, I'm not even going to remember them. You know what? That's just uh, up bonding anyhow. Let's give that a pass. Instead, let's talk, <laughs> about, instead, let's talk about what up bonding is. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before. I kind of made it up. But what you're asking me to do is, can you associate yourself with somebody who has objective value in culture, fame, glory, money, riches, success. And if you can attach yourself, associate yourself with that person successfully, that's called up bonding. And I got nothing against it, but it, it's not useful for me to practice it because if I just drop a bunch of names, what does that tell you about my capability? Except that some people have used what I know how to do effectively. Um, yeah, that's fair like, point. Yeah, it's like um, I have another practice. I'm an educational consultant. I help people get into top graduate programs, top business schools exclusively. And the only reason I mention this is that sometimes the same thing comes up. 
can you give us recommendations? Can you tell us, can we talk to people who've been successful with your process? And they would say, let me not question whether somebody else has been successful, it's whether you can be successful. Here's the facts, here's the approach, let's go forward from here. Um, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse this. Let's go on. What else have we got? Hey, hey, John. Yeah. Hey, hey, can you turn your mic up a little bit on whatever you're recording from, buddy? Uh, I can do that. Is that better? Uh, um, yeah. Give me a little audio. Whoops. Hi. This is excellent. Right. That's nice. Okay. I, I can hear you. Yeah, all right. It, it sounds like you're you're breaking up just a little bit. I apologize. Yeah. Uh, you sound fine. Let me know if, if if you got me now or if we need to continue to adjust. Yeah, no, I can I can hear you. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. So uh you put out a ton of books. Um What's your favorite thing to write about? Do you have a certain subject that you just really enjoy writing? Um, my works are in three groups. One is how-to books on writing and comedy. Another is poker. And another is novels. Of the three, I enjoy writing the novels the most. I get the most pleasure out of them because each novel is an opportunity to explore parts of my past or present in a way that's meaningful to me. See if I can tell you what I mean. I wrote a novel. No, sorry, I frame it a little differently. Uh, I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s. I was just a little too young to be a hippie. And I carried a certain regret about that for a long time, like I had missed out on an opportunity. Much later in life, I wrote a novel about hippie times, uh, about a protagonist who was my age, a little bit older, just old enough and in the right place in circumstances to catch the hippie wave. And he has a very fulfilling experience. When I was done writing that novel, I realized that I had given myself a gift. I had given myself the experience of living through something that I had wanted to live through. And in the nature of writing, you know, I was so deep into the work and the world of the story that it really felt real to me. And when I was done, I realized that the regret that I had felt about never having been a hippie had kind of gone away. And so then I asked myself, where else can I apply this? And I thought, I think about my college years as being something that were, yeah, okay, kind of successful, but not really the transcendent experience that I wanted them to be. And so I wrote a novel about another character, a protagonist, a fictional character, and his experience of going through his college years and finding the transcendence, the meaning, the purpose that I didn't find when I went through that experience. And again, I came out of it with the sensation of, I've really fulfilled, or, or I would say I've relieved an ache in my heart. I've, I've quieted a ghost that existed within me. So in terms of the value that's in it for me as a writer, the novels give me a chance to explore things that I can't explore any other way. And I find them very personally enriching. But in terms of the work that does the most good for the world, far and away, it's the how-to books on writing and how-to books on comedy. Because in those cases, I'm giving people tools they can use to make their lives rise. So the novels make my life rise 
the how-to book to make other people's lives rise. And that's why I do the book. What kind of personal feedback have you gotten uh, back on your how-to books? Have you gotten a lot of comedians that have reached out to you and said this really was good, it inspired me? Or I, I consistently get emails from people I haven't met saying that they read the comic toolbox and it turned them on like a light. Uh, same with the little book of sitcom, a bunch of others of these books. Because what these works have in common is they make it easy for you to do what you want to do. If you want to be a writer, you read Creativity Rules. It gives you simple tools you can use and strategies you can use to get your practice going. Same with Comic Toolbox, Little Book of Sitcom, these other books. I make hard things easy, and that's what people tell me when they reach out to me. Uh, I also make it very easy for people to reach out to me because I really love hearing from readers. Oh, I know. I will tell you this. One time I got a, um, a response from a reader that I'll never forget. Now, this is back in the olden days when people sent letters through the mail. You remember what that was like. Right? <laughs> yep. So this is, very, this is very, very early on in the life cycle of the comic toolbox. And I received a letter at my home and I opened it up. And out of the contents fell, I'm sorry, out of the envelope fell the cover of my book, the comic toolbox, ripped into tiny pieces, along with a note from the, the sender saying, I read your book. The only satisfaction I got out of it was destroying the cover. <laughs> and I thought, I think I thought it was a joke. I thought maybe this guy got my work on a meta level and he knew that I would appreciate this ironic comment. Or maybe he was serious. If he was serious, it was probably for this reason. That book, like a lot of my books, really challenge you to look inside yourself. They really challenge you to charge your own self-awareness. And for some people, that's so scary that when they confront their self-awareness, they bounce off it. They bounce off it so hard that they lash out against the people who challenged them to explore their self-awareness. You can see this in people who are trying to, uh, uh, they're in denial about an addiction, let's say. And if you challenge them on it, you say, hey, dude, I think you're drinking too much. Instead of saying, hey, you're right, I am drinking too much, they will lash out at you, you know, get out of my face, you're not my, my boss, you're not the boss of me. Uh, I'm angry at you for telling me a truth about myself. It seems to me that the journey we have as creative people is to tell the truth to ourselves about ourselves as much as possible because that's where our growth lies. So if I'm trying to help somebody be a better writer and I say to them, you need to have more sense of self or more self-awareness, and they get angry at me for that, then I can figure out that they're probably afraid of opening themselves up to themselves in that way. So I'm going to have to think a little more deeply about how to help does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so you put that book out in 1994, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. So is there is there a follow-up to that that you have done or no? Um, that's a great question. I, I've written a bunch of other books on comedy writing, including Comedy Writing for Life. Uh, the one I'm working on now, The Little Book of Stand-Up, that's coming along. Uh, as far as the comic toolbox itself is concerned, my 
publisher has a very interesting philosophy. She says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The book book is, in its current form, it's been around long enough to have established itself as a classic, in a sense. And I, I don't want to be immodest about that. The book does wonderful things for new writers. And as long as there's new writers, there's going to be a place for that particular book. I was worried early on that the examples in it would become outdated and that the book would need to be updated with current examples. But you asked about email from people. I've never once received an email from someone saying, I don't get the examples you're using. I don't have, I don't have enough information to, to have your frame of reference. So in that sense, it's both a classic and a perennial in this sense, meaning something that will be known to people in its current form for a while now. So I don't really feel the need to mess with it. No, uh, no. On, on a personal level, I feel like I got really lucky when I wrote it. It was my first book, and it, it's far and away my most successful book. And you might say for someone who's written 25 books and hasn't hit another home run, that might be sad, but I don't look at it that I say to myself, the first time out, I created something enduring. Now, 25 years later, I know that it's going to endure. It's endured 25 years. It's going to last another 25 easily, which means that's going to be around after I'm dead. I got a legacy. For a writer, yeah. I understand that he or she has a legacy. That's a big deal. Yeah, and when you think about that, that's, that's generations of people that you'll never meet, that you'll be helping throughout life that's really amazing when you when you think about that one day when you are getting gone you're still going to be uh passing along good words to people you know and that's that's cool well um i mean that's the plan that's that that's the that's what i'm looking for um so i'm looking at your other books here that uh the little book of sitcoms. Yeah. What is that? Uh, what are some details on that? What is that about? Is that about your personal writing experience? Is that about the shows you like growing up? Uh, between the time I wrote the comic toolbox or after I wrote the comic toolbox, I started traveling and teaching overseas, making situation comedies in many, many different countries. And by the time I'd done it a half a dozen times or so, I realized that I was learning things about the structure of sitcom writing in particular that I hadn't shared in the Comic Toolbox, simply because the Comic Toolbox wasn't strictly about situation comedy. What I was looking for was something that I could give to people that would give them the tools they needed to make a situation comedy for the very first time, even if they didn't know the first thing about it before they started. And like all my books, it's... um, layered with exercises that you can do and strategies and models that you can follow that make the whole thing really easy. For instance, in that book, there's what I call the one-page pitch template, which is just everything you need to know to boil down your sitcom idea to one page so that you can pitch it to somebody in its most basic form. That's the kind of tool that's not really generally available. I kind of made it up myself because I was looking at pitches that were way too long and I wanted something that was shorter and easier to understand. So tools like that, um, story building strategies, how to build a beat outline for a sitcom, how to uh, revise dialogue 
so that uh, it goes from being just truthful to truthful and funny, that kind of thing. Hardcore how-to stuff for people who are writing situation comedy or want to be writing situation comedy. There is an audiobook version of that, author narrated, that is narrated by me. That is, again, with all due false modesty, it's freaking awesome. It's awesome because I love my topic. I love talking about situation comedy. And so I think that my recording of it brings an energy to the subject that you might not get if it were uh, narrated by somebody other than the author. Um, that has not been available for 10 years or so, and it's only now become available again. So if people are interested in that, I would definitely point them to Audible or Amazon where they can find that. Awesome. Uh, you were, excuse me. You were talking about traveling there. Uh, I know that you spent some time in Russia and all that. Where Where's your favorite experience or where was your favorite place that you were able to travel to while being a writer? As a work experience, um, huh. well, I, I, can, can, I can tell I can answer that a couple of ways. I spent a memorable and frigid week in Toronto, holed up in a luxury hotel, doing an uncredited rewrite for the movie Friday the 13th, part 10. <laughs> I don't know why I mentioned that, but it's just, it was such a wacky experience to find myself, hey, look at me as big shot writer doing a rewrite for that movie. But it was fun. Um, in terms of teaching, I spent... Uh, Wow, gosh, I mean, there's so many. I made a TV show, in, I made three pilots and then one show in Bucharest, Romania. And this will be uh, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. And just being in a place where I was helping them do something they had never done before and kind of doing it well, that was, that was um, rewarding to me. And it was also rewarding because Romania at the time was less than a generation removed from the end of communism. And in Romania, communism was very strongly totalitarian and repressive under the dictator Ceausescu. And so the whole society was kind of in a post-traumatic stress kind of situation, very stressed out, uh, suffering, I would say, in a lot of ways. And my approach to collaborating with people is very uplifting and uh, positive and mutually supportive. And a lot of that was new to them in the workplace. They didn't really know what it was like to be on a writing staff where people not only worked hard, but thought about what it was, what it was to be good to one another. So in the sense that I was doing good work and also modeling good practice, I found that experience to be really rewarding. In terms that is of, cool. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, you're, I, I, I lost you again. Sorry. I thought you were, you cut off. Oh, there. I was just, I was just going to go and talk about Nicaragua because that was a whole. Oh yeah. No, please. Please. I, I've never talk. been. So. Okay. Well, Nicaragua, um, as you know, uh, had a civil war in the 1980s. And um, uh, that civil war attracted a lot of people from other parts of the world who were interested in participating in a revolutionary social experiment. And so after the civil war, as the Nicaraguan society started to 
rebuild and evolve, there were a lot of expatriates from other places living there and helping to create a new social norm, let's say. One of these people reached out to me and asked if I would come there and help make the social action situation comedy designed to, as we put it, teach the young people of Nicaragua to think for themselves and practice safe sex. And I thought, well, that sounds like a <laughs> role. They didn't have a lot of money. It was not a government or a television network or a production company, but a social action group, a collective, that had the idea to make this show. They'd had some success making radio programming for Nicaraguan young people and poor people and abused people and gay people and women, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was natural for them to take on a TV show. But again, they didn't really know how to go about it. They needed somebody who could kind of, um, you know, tell them where to point the cameras or tell them how to write the scripts. And so that's the role I played. <clears throat> I made two TV shows there. Both had significant social impact. And coming out of that experience, I kind of felt like, okay, now I've got my ticket to heaven punched, if I could put it that way. I, I have massively contributed to the greater good. What more do I really need to accomplish? <laughs> When you go out of country and you write, do you ever feel like you uh, you don't get what's funny to them? Or is there a communication breakdown with humor? Or is some of that just universal? That's a great question, guys. There's a lot to look at here. First of all, some things in comedy are universal. The fundamental math of comedy is this. Comedy equals truth plus pain. If you know what's true about a situation and what hurts, or what's painful about a situation, then you know what's going to be funny. I'll give you an example. Um, I haven't had sex in a year, says one guy. Oh, says his friend, are you celibate? He says, no, I'm married. So the truth and pain is married guys don't have sex, right? Now, that truth and, that truth and pain is universal. If you're a married guy in, in Russia or Nicaragua or New Zealand or the United States, you know what it's like or at least you know enough to know how that joke is funny. So there, yeah, right. are parts of, there are parts of comedy that are universal, fundamental truths, fundamental pains that everybody's interested, death, sex, religion, work, meaning life, family, kids, teenagers, on and on and on. But every mm -hmm. culture has its own cultural norm or filter that it looks at this stuff through. So a, a German's take on what's funny is going to be different from a Russian's take on what's funny, from an American's take on what's funny. But there's always a relationship between the culture and the humor. And it's a relationship that you can see if you look for it. And so what I've done in my practice is to say, I'm not coming into Russia to tell them how Americans make comedy. I'm coming into Russia to figure out what's funny to them and then show them how to take what's funny to them and weave it into stories and build it into better jokes and use all of these strategies. So I'm often in a situation where someone will tell a joke and I don't get it. And I'll know that I don't get it because I don't have enough cultural context to understand the joke. And then I'll just ask for the context and then I'll understand the joke. But I never confuse the two. If I hear something that's not funny to me, I'm always aware that it might not be funny to me just because something was lost in translation or because I don't have the culture, those are pieces of information that I can gather. Um, a lot of the countries that I've been in, 
their humor is kind of self-deprecating. That is to say, they make fun of themselves as their main thing. And that's kind of different from the U.S. We're more aspirational. We look up more than down. So that was something that I had to look at when I was traveling overseas, just to make sure that I wasn't trying to make them be like me rather than allow myself to be educated by who they are, what they do. I'm going to give you a couple of examples that'll show you what I mean. There's a joke they tell in Russia about the Chukchi people. The Chukchi people are indigenous people who live in northern Siberia, equivalent to our uh, native Alaskans. And the joke goes like this. Chukchi walks into a television store and says to the guy, do you have any color televisions? And the guy says, yes, of course we have color televisions. Chukchi says, great, I'll have a green one. <laughs> now, that may, or may not be, that may or may not be funny to you, but it gives you important information about how the Russians look at the Chukchis. It tells us the Russians think those people are stupid. And now that yeah. we know that, now that we know that, we have a piece of information that we can build on. We have a deeper understanding of the culture. I'll give you another example. This is a joke they tell all over South America, aimed at the Argentinians. How did the Argentinian commit suicide? He climbed to the top of his ego and jumped off. The, the, the fall did not kill him. He died of starvation on the way down. Now again, wow. what does this tell us? I know, wow. What does this tell us? It tells us not that Argentinians have big egos, but that all of South America thinks Argentinians have big egos. And now we have a piece of the cultural puzzle. If I want to tell, a, if I want to make a sitcom in South America this instant, I'm going to make it be about an Argentinian and a Brazilian who fall in love with each other. Or no, uh, maybe an Argentinian and a Par and Uruguayan, because Argentina and Uruguay, they hate each other. So I'll have an Argentinian and a, and a Uruguayan who are in love with each other and their families hate each other. And the whole thing is built on this fact that Argentinians think they're better than the rest of us. Now, you can see what's happening here. I'm taking information and using that information to solve creative problems. And in this, we find the heart of my strategy. This is the thing that I teach. I could say this is the thing that I preach. Use information to solve problems. If you don't have the information you need, gather more. That's easy. Once you have the information you need, solve the problem analytically, scientifically. Don't get too caught up in questions of, am I good enough to solve this problem? How does my ego feel about solving this problem? Will people love me if I solve this problem? Just do your thing. If you want to write jokes, write jokes. Treat it as problem solving. Feed it, feed it with information. Stuff it with information. You can have all the jokes you need, always. That's a promise from me. You must be 100% satisfied or your money cheerfully retained. Uh, Jeff, are you there, buddy? Yes, I'm here. Did you lose me? Okay. Okay. No, no, we're good. Sorry. So when you're traveling to all these different places, now, do you know the languages or do you have to have a translator? Uh, depending on where I go and, and when I go. Hmm. Um, yes. Uh, I have a little bit of Spanish. So I, I can, can fake 
certain parts of Spanish. Not really. Uh, <laughs> all over, if I'm being honest, all over Northern Europe and in many other places in the world where I've worked, the people who work in my business have English as a second language. Television writers as a group, as a group in Northern Europe and where else? In Malaysia, where I worked, Indonesia, when I worked there, everybody who was working with me was competent in English or else they just weren't participating in that project. In other places, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, Russia, I've had to work through a translator because I don't speak the language and there is not enough English penetration in those places for us to use English as a common language. It's, it's an inconvenience, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. In Russia, when I was working there, it was very, very common for uh, people for, from outside of Russia to work in Russia to conduct business there in the company of their interpreters. Um, that's just kind of day out, day in and day out practice. I was working for Sony at the time, and they provided me with their translator from or their interpreter from among their group of interpreters. In other times, I've been in situations like addressing large groups. I'll be spending a day or a weekend teaching the comic toolbox in Rome, as an example. And there I will be doing simultaneous translation. Now, what this means is that I'm speaking through a microphone to an audience in English, and those who wish to listen to me in English hear me in, in English. But at the same time, the signal from the microphone is going to a recording booth, or not a recording booth, but a, a translation booth, where people are listening to me and translating me into Italian in real time. And that signal is going to people wearing headphones in the audience so that they can take the information in Italian. Oh, that's the pretty cool. The interesting and fun thing about that is sometimes I get two laughs out of the same joke because I'll tell a joke and it'll land in English right away. And then <laughs> after a slight lag, the Italian translation will come in and then I'll get another laugh out of the Italian speakers. <laughs> so you get the delay. <laughs> it's kind of a fun phenomenon. It's, it's, it's worth it's worth going for, and then it's worth commenting on because sometimes the joke only works for the English speakers because there's something in translation that's simply untranslatable. And if that happens, then we can talk about why this joke doesn't translate, why and how it's defeated by the language or, or, or defeated by cultural information. If I may, I'd like to, to do a little bit of teaching here. I'll take a minute, but I think it'd be worthwhile. What we're doing yeah. is using what we're doing is using a tool called abstraction. We're looking at things and asking ourselves, what is the abstract value or quality that this thing has? And the place that we're doing this now is in a writer's room in Sofia, Bulgaria in 2010. I'm there developing another version of Married with Children. And we as a team are working on a script that has the following storyline. Al and Peg, the heroes of Married with Children, go to visit a drive-in restaurant that they enjoyed when they were teenagers and they were first in love and that is now being torn down. The writers I was working with in Bulgaria had no idea what a drive-in restaurant was. They just had never seen one before, couldn't really comprehend it, didn't know how to make it work in the story. So I said to these guys, 
what is the abstract value of driving restaurant for these characters? It represents nostalgia, a sense of longing or loss from something that came before and is now gone. Then I said to them, now it's 2010 in Bulgaria, not 1990 in America. What would somebody today look back on with nostalgia and a sense of loss? And they said, oh, just after the fall of communism, when we had our first restaurants where we could go and order a meal, that's a place we remember fondly. That's nostalgia for us. And oh, by the way, that chain of restaurants had the wonderful name of Democratic Steak. <laughs> and, and, and now we have a problem-solving tool. If we don't understand a thing, we can ask ourselves, what is this thing really about? What is its abstract value? And then once we've identified that abstract value, we can ask, what other things have this same value? And how can we use the ones from around here rather than from over there? And once we have that technology working, then we can take old American sitcoms, uh, uh, boil them down to their essence, bring them into new countries, Bulgaria, Russia, wherever, and rebuild them in a way that will make cultural sense to the writers and the actors and the audience. And that's kind of cool. Now, when you're done working on those kind of projects, do you go back and watch, watch the, the show? The original show? No, like when you're going and uh, developing one for in a different country and that like you did with uh, Married with Children. And now do you watch any of that as it uh, from the, the country that you're in there and see how that that show ends up taking off? Oh, or sure. Not, or? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And, and you can find clips on YouTube. You can find clips of the Russian version of Married with Children. Go to my YouTube page and find all kinds of interesting artifacts. Um, but I do go back. I, I, I watch them to see how they turn out. Of course, I'm watching them in a language I don't speak, which is kind of <laughs> interesting. So all I can really do is, is respond to the look and the feel. But I'll tell you something I learned. This is kind of interesting. I was in Romania. I was casting a pilot. Well, a pilot was being cast. And uh, my Romanian producing partner, asked me to sit in on the casting sessions. And, and I, I said, what good's that going to do? So I, don't, I, I don't understand the words they're saying. You know, how am I going to know whether they're delivering the lines well? I said, well, maybe that'll actually be good. Because if you don't know what the words are, then you'll have a much clearer picture of how the actors feel. And they realized that that was true. As I watched the auditions, I realized I could tell which actors I thought were right without even understanding their words. I could tell which ones I liked. I could tell which ones just weren't going to happen, just by their look and feel. And that inspired me to start asking directors the following question. When you audition an actor, how long does it take you to know whether that actor has what it takes or not? And every single director I've asked has answered the question the same way. They all say, I know before they even open their mouth. I know when they walk in the room. Because actors really? who have it, yeah, because actors who have it 
have an energy about them, a presence about them, charisma that's just unmistakable and un undeniable. You know. And another way you know, you know when actors don't have it because they're trying so hard to fake like they do have it. And, <laughs> and, and, and someone who's faking confidence is easily distinguishable from someone who genuinely has confidence. You see this in stand-up comedy all the time, do you not? Where you have a, 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 a comic who might have good material, but he's so needy and serves it to the audience with such a, a desire to be approved and awarded and validated that the audience kind of says, it's not my job to make you feel good about yourself. It's the other way around. It's your job to make me feel good about myself. So if you can't bring it without caring whether I take it, you're not the comic. Yeah. 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 Do you have a, a show that you've done the writing for that is more of a favorite of yours that you spend more time watching, I guess? I'll tell you what I've done most recently that I'm excited about. I co-authored a documentary called Misery Loves Comedy with Kevin Pollack, the actor. Oh, look at me, how funny. <laughs> look at me naming up in Kevin Pollack. Oh, man. You, try, you know what? You try to be enlightened. You try to be self-aware. You try to have a higher mind. And you just step into the same ego traps over and over again. So, yeah, me and my buddy, Kevin Pollack, did I mention that I played over game for a while? Blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> that's anyway. only one, you know, that's all right. Everybody anyway. gets one. <laughs> anyway, I did, I did write, co-write this documentary about stand-up comics. And it asks the question, do you have to be screwed up to be a stand-up comic? Or does stand-up comedy screw you up? And, of course, the answer is yes, both. <laughs> until the end of time so that was a, a satisfying project and that's on netflix you can actually see that so that's good um a lot of my other credits are overseas and i'll i'll be honest with you i've been more about writing books in the last few years than anything else i don't know why maybe because books last in a sense and i'm more interested in doing things that last or maybe i like being captain of my own ship more and more. You get older, you get more. No, I think it's this. When I was younger, <laughs> when I was younger, uh, I was I was into hardcore creative collaboration from the perspective of I don't really know what I'm doing and I need to learn from other people. I need to rub shoulders with them and know what they know, learn what they know. As I became more uh, experienced as a writer, I developed this sense of I think I, I understand my craft. I know what I want to do. And I kind of want to have all the decisions be mine. And, and in this, we also find something that's fundamental about creativity. This is true whether you're a writer or an artist or a musician or a stand-up comic or any kind of creator at all. Creativity is, at its bottom, making decisions, making choices. Shall I use the red paint or the yellow? Shall I tell a mother-in-law joke or a daughter-in-law joke? Shall I play this in the key of C or the key of G? What choice do I want to make? And for people who, who get good at being creative, what they're really getting good at is making choices and then standing by the choices they make, but also making choices and being ready to change those choices when better options come along. 
but mostly what they're doing is making choices. And when people realize this, they're making artists making choices, they become much more comfortable with the idea of, okay, well, I might not have enough information to trust this choice, but I know I have to make this choice, so I might as well make this one because it feels right. And when you start making choices because they just feel right, then you start to get some momentum in your creative practice and stuff starts to get good. And then you make a few more choices and you get some experience making choices and you start to say, hey, you know, I've been making a bunch of choices here and they haven't been terrible choices. Some of them haven't worked out, but some of them are kind of clever. All right, so I'm building some expertise on making choices. Now I'm going to keep on making more. And then you get into a nice positive feedback loop where the more choices you make, the more confidence you have in your choices. And the more confidence you have in your choices, the easier it is to make choices. And the more easier it is to make choices, the more choices you make. And then you're in thriving and sustained practice. And then you get to be like me, where you say, I want all the choices to myself. Nobody else gets to have them. They're all mine. Me, me, <laughs> me. And that's the writing and the editing and the cover art and the publishing and everything. Because I want every single choice to myself. And that's kind of the picture of a greedy and enthusiastic creator who arrived at this place by being a suffering and insecure one for a long, long time. <laughs> so if I may speak to your audience, if there's anybody out there who currently feels like a suffering and insecure creator, hang in there, hang in there. Because eventually you'll be as selfish and self-satisfied as me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way of looking at it. You know, that's... That's uh, great words for sure. Real quick, before we get off here, John, where can everybody buy your work at? Pl plug your work, please. Okay. The, the only thing you really need to know is my name, John Vorhaus. I'll spell it for you. J-O-H-N-V as in victory, O-R-H-A-U-S. When you have that, you have the following. You have johnvorhaus.com, which is my website. You have the search terms for my Amazon author page. Just go to Amazon and search John Borehouse, and there you'll find all of my books, ebooks, Kindle books, audiobooks, a big trove of books there. You can also go to redbubble.com and search John Borehouse and find your way to my art shop. And there you can find my art, which is supremely cool, in my humble opinion. And you can get it on t shirts and mugs and bath mats and all kinds of crazy ass stuff that's a that's a good uh, uh good time sink for you run around there look at my pretty pictures you'll see more pretty pictures on the website too <laughs> and then this finally this i'm a person in the world i'm interested in opportunities if you think that i have some you have something that i can help you with as a coach or consultant i invite you to reach out to me directly i'm interested in interesting things and if you've got an interesting thing going on I'd like to hear about it. Also, if you think I can help you in my modest way, I'll try and do that. I've always had a real open, two-way communication between myself and my readers. So I invite you to visit my website, click on contact, and get into a conversation with me. You never know where that's going to lead. So that's my pitch. That's um, awesome that you do that. Yeah, and that, that yeah, is really not cool. very many people do. So that yeah. is really cool. I try to be of service. No, I am in service, and so. Thank you for saying that. 
um, it, it, it's my pleasure to do so, but it's also my purpose to do so. Yeah, I think that speaks to how humble you, you are as a person after putting out so much work, you know, you're still willing to hear people out and uh, listen to other people's stories. Sometimes in this business, ego uh, overdrives. So, you know, it's nice that people still do nice things like that. You know? Can I just say that, that the easiest way to understand ego, if ego is a problem for you, gentle listener, there's two ways of dealing with what's in front of you. You can serve the work or serve the ego. If you serve the ego, you're just asking yourself, what can I do to make myself feel good? But if you serve the work, you're asking, what can I do to make the work work better? And the interesting thing is, if you choose to serve the work, if you make that choice, if you say, I'm going to serve the work, not my ego, what happens is that the work gets better. And when the work gets better, you feel good. And so by serving the work, you're actually serving your ego in a much more profound way. So insofar as I'm at war against ego, I would say defeat ego simply by serving the world. Makes a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, uh, egos are are terrible. So I I don't like dealing with people like that. I don't let that drive me. If you if you got an ego, there's something wrong with you. Well, and one thing that's why I kind of look at it. That's really cool with what what you're doing and and what you do in general with just your how to books and things like that. And sharing that knowledge, you know, and Annie and I are in a band and in music, it seems that uh, people protect that a lot more. They don't want to share some of those things and um, are more protective of their craft. And um, so I think, you know, that that's really awesome that you're willing to, you know, take what you've learned, take your knowledge and things like that and, and share that with people. Are you talking about people who are reluctant to teach other people what they know for fear of creating competition with themselves? Or are you talking yes, about yes. That? <laughs> That's just bullshit. Haven't they heard that a rising tide? <laughs> I mean, come on. You, you, this, wow, this really toasts my cheese. Look, I've been in places where there are only three sitcom writers in an entire country, and they're carrying all the load themselves. And if they're successful, all they're going to do is create a demand for more sitcom that they can't possibly meet. They cannot possibly enjoy success unless they train a lot of people to help them. Otherwise, they create an expectation they can't meet, and the whole enterprise is lost. I know what it's like to be in a place where you have to share the knowledge because there's just not enough knowledge to go around. But this idea that if I teach you my tricks, somehow you're going to get ahead of me and you're going to win and I'm going to lose. Yeah, that's unqualified bullshit. That's selfishness, pettiness. I mean, it's just completely wrong. It doesn't work that way. You help other people. I, I, you back. I, I totally agree with what I said. Sadly, we do see that a lot in, in music. In my opinion, business is just better when you work instead of against each other it's it always makes a day at the office a lot better you know and you choose who you work with if, if yeah. I'm, yeah if i'm with people who, who don't demonstrate a minimum level of self-awareness i'm just not going to work with them i mean and, and i tell this to to writers in my writers rooms i say come look you guys we're here to serve the work and i understand that you have ego issues but if if you can't at least pretend to serve the work I can't have you in my room. It's not going to work like that. 
because I'm making a choice. Remember, creativity is choice. I'm making a choice to work with people who see the work the way I do, which is to say with awareness and acceptance. If you're not that, you have to play in somebody else's sandbox. Now, in the real world that we live in, you know, you run into, let's say, managers who are dicks or bookers who are assholes who don't who don't have enough self-awareness for your purposes. And sometimes you have to work with them. And then you have to meet them on their level because they simply can't meet you on your level. They don't have the, the intellectual tools. I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm just saying they, they don't have empathy and other awareness that they can use to see things yeah. from their point of view. So you've yeah. got to see them from their point of view. But, but you can be aggressive for your point of view. You can say to people who are not used to working collaboratively and generously with each other, let's try generosity of spirit. Let's see what that does for us. And what you're going to find is some people will be attracted to that idea. They'll say, yeah, generosity of spirit. Let's start a collective. And then we'll get something going. And you'll have other people who say, that's bullshit. I don't want any part of it. And they will go away and leave you alone. It's a win-win. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. Well, John, I appreciate you being here, buddy, and giving us some time. Uh, we recommend everybody to go check out your books. You have a huge catalog. I'm sure there's something for everybody. Keep them entertained. And if you're an aspiring writer, comedian, whatever, John, give, give look John's up your John's guy. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm here, to um, you, here to take you by the hand. <laughs> Hey, that's great, man. Uh, I know there's people out there that could could use some help. They just probably don't know where to go to get it. So, you know, it's it's great. Um, do you do any book signings? Do you have any dates or anything like that? Or um, I, I'm I'm still recovering from the pandemic from the shutdown. I lost my European tour two summers in a row, so that's a shame. But it'll come back around. I'm doing yeah. a lot of stuff stuff by Zoom. I'm not traveling at the moment, so is the answer to that question. Um, but but if as and when that um, uh, that changes, I'll let you know. Also, I am um, about six months out from releasing the little book of stand up, and I'd love to come back and chat with you about that. Oh yeah, it's available to your readers. It's going to be a big thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We'd love to have you back and uh, talk about that. Great. Yeah, keep me posted. If you get some dates booked or whatever, I'll plug it here on the show. We'll spread the word however we can about uh, whatever you want us to. So, pretty much. Awesome. I appreciate it. All but, right. All right. all right, John. It was great having you, buddy. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day there. Take it easy. Take care of yourself, John. Yep. Go local sports team. <laughs> Later, buddy. Bye.